Welcome to Downstage Center. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we're joined by John Barrowman, who has uh, just recently starred in the London production of Anything Goes. John Barrowman is known to people in this country, having appeared in Sunset Boulevard and opposite Carol Burnett in Putting It Together, notably in London on the West End and Miss Saigon, Sunset Boulevard, Phantom of the Opera. You may have seen him very recently in the Cole Porter biography movie that was out this summer, De Lovely, where he starred opposite Kevin Klein, and they sang a song together, which we'll hear a little bit later, Night and Day. John also is familiar to American TV audiences in Darren Starr's series Central Park West. John, welcome to XM28 on Broadway. Thank you. Nice to be here. What a, what a great introduction. I should take you everywhere with me. Well, you've, you've had this amazing <laughs> run. I mean, when you sit down and look through the shows that you've been in, it's sort of like the catalog of every major hit in the past 10 years and key revivals which, which go beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I... I don't know if you noticed, but every time somebody does an introduction as eloquently as that and, and, and as lovely as that, I always get a thrill. I just sit and I think to myself, you know, I, so I, I can't even believe it sometimes that uh, <laughs> I've done the number of shows and the, the caliber of shows that I've done. It's uh, I'm, I'm just I'm very lucky, you know, and, and bluntly saying I'm, I'm, I'm living my dream. And it all began singing top ten tunes on the counter of the record shop at your, in Glasgow, your mother's record shop? That's right. In Glasgow, Scotland, my uh, mother had a record shop with one of her best girlfriends. And I used to come from school, uh, you know, at the age of eight and younger, uh, getting on the, the double-decker bus and going down to the record shop. And I would stand on the counter, and people would come in and ask me to sing the top ten hits or you know they'd ask for one particular one and I would rattle off these songs and you know <laughs> my grand used to say it's all the go John it's all the go and I would <laughs> sing the sing the music and they would buy the they would buy the records because I sang them <laughs> and, then, and and then your family up and moved to the US so the record shop went away right. the early performing career did it go away immediately Not, or? well it it, it kind of did for a little while there uh, I I wasn't that was more kind of pop singing and I wasn't really introduced to uh, musicals until I came to the US um, it was my father his the company he worked for he was a vice president for Caterpillar Tractor Company uh, and was moved to the states uh, so it was a decision, you know, a, a work decision that, that moved us. And when I, you know, first came to the States, I was more worried about fitting in and, you know, doing things in grade school. And it wasn't until I uh, one evening went to bed and my parents had given me a TV to put in my room, I guess, to keep me out of the way for a little while. And I woke up, uh, it was late night, and I remember vividly it was a, uh, 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 one of those midnight matinees they used to call them on one of the the, the, the local, uh, I think it was an ABC channel, I'm not sure. Um, but I turned it on and there was Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and dancing away and he was singing away and that was my first kind of look at kind of Hollywood uh, uh, movie musicals. But um, theater musicals and stuff, it, my, my first introduction was Peter Pan. I remember when Peter Pan flew out over the audience and I just looked up there and thought, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of what makes me feel the way I'm feeling. Now, right now. when you were living in, in Glasgow, you didn't see the old American movies? They didn't have them on the television back well, then? Well, they. Uh, my, my mother took me to most of the Disney movies uh -huh. because, uh, remember, in, um, you know, we're going back now into the 60s and 70s, and in Glasgow there was only three, and, and in England there were only three t TV channels at mm. that time. 
and they stopped at 10 o'clock at night. Uh. So any movies that would have been on would have been during the day because they do play matinees in the afternoon. But I wouldn't have watched those because I would have mm-hmm. been at school. So, you know, the, I had introduction to theater in Glasgow. That was where I saw Peter Pan. But my movie introduction and, and to kind of what I call the glamour of, of, of musicals and to the, the fantasy of musicals I was introduced to in the States and fell in love with it and, and have known since I was way back singing on that counter in the record shop. That's always what I've wanted to do. I've never wanted to do anything else. Now, when you came to this country, it was Joliet, Illinois, was it? First Aurora, Illinois, and then to Joliet, Joliet. Illinois. So both really... Those hotbeds of theatrical activity. Those (laughs) hotbeds of theatrical activity. And yeah, you know, but funny enough, when I went to to school there, particularly in Joliet, uh, they they don't have now so much anymore because unfortunately Joliet is... uh, decided to spend money elsewhere than uh, rather than on the arts and I, 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 I find that you know quite you know hard to, to, to swallow not only for myself but because I, I'm sure you've heard of Anthony Rapp Anthony is also from Joliet we went to the same high school and we're, we're friends mm. growing up uh, Andy Dick who is a you know a television mm. uh, sure. performer he is from Joliet was a year older than me so we have a great artistic flair in Joliet, believe it or not, but yet they don't want to pay attention to it. But the time well, when you've I... actually... I mean, we're, we haven't even gotten through your career, but yeah. that I noticed you've started... You've gone back and tried to develop a program yourself back there? Yes, I have. I go back and uh, every year, myself and my partner in the business, Beverly Holt, uh, who was my uh, high school accompanist, and she also plays for me in my cabaret acts, uh, I, I took her away from the high school. We went back to the high school at first uh, to do... Uh, workshops called the Dreamers Workshop. It's a week-long workshop where we treat, we teach life skills through theater skills for those who don't want to be involved in the industry and then give people who do want to be involved in the industry a more in-depth view. Now, again, you know, the, being the, the town, and I, I don't like, want to sound like I'm being heavy on Joliet, but maybe this is the time to be, they uh, really didn't want, the, I felt the high school that I went to didn't want it there anymore, so we took it elsewhere to another part of the community that really wanted to have theater involved in their uh, school's program. And Joliet West High School, where I went to uh, and spent four years and was introduced again to the love of, of theater and that craft, uh, no longer has a program that's even worth talking about, really. So I tried, and it didn't work, but I've gone elsewhere. Now, so how, look, how, how did you get from Joliet to doing your what you're doing now? Joliet, to the West End. From Joliet to the West End. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually, when I was in Joliet, I... Uh, went to an open call audition for a place called Opryland USA. And I, I sang and I was singing and dancing at Opryland. And then I was introduced to a school in Southern California called USIU, where I went to study uh, musical theater, basically, and, and, uh, and, and theater. It was there that we had a program uh, to go study Shakespeare in um, London with a sister school uh, and uh, Radha and Lambda and all the rest of them. And we went over. I went over with the class in my last year, six months to go to get my bachelor's degree. And I went three months early with a friend and we went to tour Scotland, having been from there. And I saw an open call audition on a, a Glasgow TV station. And I went down to see if I could do what I was being trained to do. And 48 hours after that, I was offered the job opposite Elaine Page in Jerry Zach's Lincoln Center production of Anything Goes playing the role of Billy Crocker. And that's mm-hmm. how I got from Joliet to the West At End. age 20... 21, I think. At 21 or 22, I was. It's 
and I was gobsmacked. I was dream. I was gobsmacked. Nobody even had to break a leg for you to do that. Well, no, no. Well, yeah, no, nobody did. It was it was really bizarre because everybody talks about these Cinderella stories, and you always hear about them happening. And here I was in the middle of you know. Well, I'd like to say Prince Charming rather than Cinderella, but you know, uh, but um, I, I here I was in the middle of something like that 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 just was a dream come true, and I didn't think I would get the job. I thought uh, I was too young, but Elaine, uh, when we uh, I went down to sing and to meet with Elaine and Tim Rice and Jerry's, they flew Jerry over. Uh, I later found out that uh, Larry Oakes, who was the gentleman who auditioned me and the in-house director, there, he said we knew that. If, even if they thought you were not right to play this and too young, we couldn't let you go because you were something that we could develop. And, you know, he said at that time, my friend, I'm speaking as Larry, he said, my friend Cameron McIntosh might use you for something or put you through the ropes to train you. So I I just went with the flow, basically, and fortunately, Elaine loved me. Well, you just mentioned Tim Rice in there. Tim, how did Tim Rice come into an audition for Anything Goes? Tim was one he, of the, He didn't write that. No, he didn't write that. <laughs> but uh, He's wrote a lot, a lot of other things, but no, Tim didn't write that. Tim was uh, one of the, uh, at that time, Elaine's uh, partner. Uh, well, um, I should say lover rather than partner, but they had a, a little thing going okay. on, uh, which everybody knows about, so I'm not talking about anything that is... Maybe is our listeners didn't, Maybe so they thanks. don't. Well, so there, Tim Rice and Elaine Page had a long, long-running affair okay. during the late 70s and early 80s. And uh, uh, Tim was a producer, as was Elaine, and uh, funny that, and uh, Jerry, so that's why they were all involved. But that was my introduction to my professional introduction to to theater and how long did you do that run for i mean here you are you're just taken up your were you even done with school no i oh I, I never finished i never got my bachelor's degree uh i i the school always kept asking me to come back and i kept saying to the school you know I, i'd love to come back but i'm probably getting more experience doing this now than most teachers could could teach me at that point because it, it's rather than being book taught it was i'm learning by doing so um yeah no I, that was I didn't finish the the program and and that was that was basically how it it went from there so Now you mentioned a few minutes ago yeah. that when you came to the states and you were living in Illinois Joliet or Aurora one of yep. those two places you were introduced to the old movies just yes. Fred and Ginger and all that um and I think it's interesting that your first big role was in Anything Goes a Cole Porter show and most recently in the movie about Cole Porter the lovely where you sang the song that Fred Astaire introduced on stage in absolutely and I, I can't and he, I can't remember the name of the film off the top of my head if I'm it was, sure it was, no it was, your it was actually know. on the stage in gay divorce oh gay divorce and then That's later right. and then later he played about? he played the same part in the gay divorcee which was the movie title the movie of, of gay divorce right. which was not called divorcee I didn't know that you see it was okay on the Broadway stage to have a person who was divorced being happy about being divorced. Right. But there was nothing about the institution that could be happy on the other side of the Hudson River in America in general. <laughs> so when they made the movie, they said the institution of divorce cannot be the happy thing. Right. It has to be the person who's divorced. They added an E to the end of the word I divorce. I did not know that. Made it the gay divorcee. And they added the word. Well, it's uh, important that you know the moral <laughs> so, structure no, of the so 1930s you know Hollywood that. film. No, code. Listen, it certainly is, and in particular, I mean, because I've you know, Cole Porter's been such a big part of my life. I, uh, that's one thing. <laughs> the beauty that I always find about him is I always learn something new. I always learn something new about the man or or, or his work or something around it. But yeah, no, that the irony was that 
Fred Astaire, the actual scene I did in The Lovely. With Kevin Klein. With Kevin Klein, that sort of argument that we had uh, actually was taken from an actual uh, scene that did happen between Fred Astaire and uh, Cole Porter. And they based it on that. The character wasn't based on Fred Astaire. Well, who, who, who was the character? Well, the who character was, was somebody they kind of... Com- they didn't want to give any particular names and references to him because obviously there was there were so many uh, kind of male uh, uh, lovers of Cole Porter. Uh, so they, they didn't really choose. They gave him a kind of... An obsc- a name of, of no one who really existed. Kind of ambiguous. Yeah, ambiguous. But they wanted the the scene to be the one that was between Fred Astaire. And the Fred Astaire estate were adamant that people know that it wasn't Fred Astaire that I was playing which with is a why, different name. Which is why the setup line, something to the effect of, we should have hired we Astaire for We should have hired Astaire for this yeah, one. Yeah, That's yeah. correct. So that <laughs> that saved their butts, basically, with all the <laughs> with the lawyers. But, yeah, no, to have that and to be able to sing that song... And also for uh, for those of you who who have seen the movie or will will see the movie, whether it be in, in the cinema or on DVD or video, if you notice, um, you may not, but I I did that song live. I didn't do it to a, a, a I I wanted to because it was in a theater. We filmed at the Old Vic in London, and because it was in a theater, I wanted to give the actual sound of it being live. And I sing in a theater every night, so I I did. I didn't want to go in the studio and do a studio recording. I did do one for them for the orchestra. But then I said, please allow me to do it live because it'll give a, a different sound and it will sound like it's done in a theater. So that actually is me doing it live take after take after take and put together. And, he, and Kevin also was doing it live. Kevin was also doing it live also. Yes. Yeah, so that that's one of the... The, you know, the others were doing it live, but doing it to a click and, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit of different mixing. And, and it was mixed in the studio, but mine mine wasn't. Mine was done in the theater. Well, let's listen to it and keep in mind this is live. Certainly is. That from the soundtrack of De Lovely, the so-called biography of Cole Porter. I say so-called because there are a lot of inaccuracies in terms of the history, but the lovely music of Cole Porter, very well written. More accurate than the first movie, oh, but likely. still <laughs> not <laughs> actually the truest, the truest telling of, of the Cole Porter story. No, I mean, it was it's it's still an element of Hollywood built into it, but yeah, it's, it's so much truer than the original Cary Grant film, and I love the line that Ke- uh, Kevin says as Cole Porter, you know, they... He says, I don't know why, uh, to Linda. He says, I don't know why Linda goes back to Cole. And Linda turns to him and says, because he's Cary Grant. (laughs) (laughs) In that movie, there is an interesting choice made to to try to reach out to other audiences by bringing in pop performers. And you, outside of, of... Kevin singing some songs that as Cole Porter that he wrote, you're one of the few straight musical performers right. who get to perform the Cole Porter music in the midst of all of that. What's what's your reaction to, to the idea that we need to bring Elvis Costello and Sheryl Crow and Natalie Cole in to to that music and and what was the feeling as the film was being done? Well I I I have no I have personally no problem with that because I'm I look at what I do uh, although the artistic end and the uh, uh, it's the entertainment business and business being an operative word people look at it from a business angle and you want to draw in the general public uh would not go see a movie i don't think with uh um 
you know, about Cole Porter with people they didn't know in it. So they try to attract it in a different way. They they take the the, mo- the most popular singers at the time, and not just the ones you've mentioned, but also in Europe, Lara Fabian, who is a huge star in France. Uh, a friend of mine, Mario Frangoulis, who's an opera singer in uh, uh, Greece. They're all they are all involved in it, uh, and. Um, I have no problem with it. There was no no bad. Actually, some of Alanis Morissette before uh, uh, we were rehearsing to do a live show of the, the all the numbers in Cannes at the premiere. She couldn't. I I went in. I took Robbie Williams' place also and sang his number number and, uh, and uh, from the from the show and did it as a duet with Alanis. And she actually pulled me aside and said, "John, can you before the show? Can you sing this number this part into a tape for me because I can't get the the harmony." Hmm. And I just found that really endearing because I was standing next to her thinking, oh, my God, I'm mm-hmm. standing next to Alanis Morissette singing a duet with her. My, you know, my nieces and nephews would freak mm-hmm. out. I'm freaking out. And she was asking my opinion because, in a way, she you know, respected what I did as I respected her. So there was no kind of animosity or anything going on when we were making the film. And in respect to what you know, people doing, the musical Chicago does it now. They bring in big names to play Billy Flynn and to play uh, uh, you know, Roxy and Velma because it puts bums on seats, basically. Yes. And as long as there's bums on seats and watching the movies like the, the, the Cole Porter biopic, like Chicago the movie and the different Broadway shows and West End shows, it employs me and employs the rest of the people in the industry. And I'm happy for them to do it. What's wonderful about the moment in the movie, though, is by using a seasoned stage performer where it is Cole Porter talking about how to perform it. It's it's quite a wonderful moment in the movie. For me, it was it was really the high point of the film because of just the beauty of this is how you think through a song. This is how you perform a song. And then, of course, you you deliver. Then you do it. Well, that's that was I'm glad you said that, because that's partially what we tried to do. Kevin and I had talked about the scene prior to doing it and uh, said we really wanted to get that across to get across the theatricality of it the process that goes through in a nutshell we tried to fit in what we do normally in uh, you know eight six to eight to twelve weeks in a rehearsal period into you know less than four minutes on film and also the way Irwin filmed it Erwin uh, Winkler the director and one of the, pr- the producers with that time the movement of time with the, the turning of the camera uh, yeah, and and MGM were really pleased with all of that. And that's the scene that uh, MGM uses for uh, pub- they used to sell and to get more money for the film. So, well, as you talk about the turning of time, I have to ask. We've been talking. We've talked already about your your big break in London with the Anything Goes, uh, the Lincoln Center Jerry Zachs production, and all of two weeks ago you were just concluding what really was a couple of years again in Anything Goes Mm -hmm. in London ultimately playing at least part of the run in the same house that you played in the first time around No, it was a different house. I was misled. But but here you were in the same part with a gap of about 13 years in your life. Yes, right, yes. What does that passage of time do when you come back to a show? This isn't, it's not going back certainly to a Shakespeare play where your life experience necessarily allows you to deepen, or does it, even what? in this kind of light material? Yes, it does. It, it does help you because uh, I'm a little older, I'm more mature. The character when I played him was falling in love with uh, the girl and also had fallen in love with, re- well, sorry, not fallen, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> 
the character had not really fallen in love with Reno. They were played as best friends when I did it the first time around. So having had the 13 years and the life experience, I also came, to, the approach to it was to play it, although it's high, uh, heightened reality and very high camp and over the top and, and in a way slapstick, I t- played it, tried to play it with more truth, if that makes any sense, which makes the, makes the jokes and everything land better. If you play it with this conviction that you believe it even more, rather than playing it for the jokes, it works so much better. Um, I actually had a better time doing it this time than I did when I was younger. Well, the first time you were going into an existing production. This time you were with it from the start. But certainly working with Jerry Zaks and Trevor Nunn, these are two very different different directors, (laughs) to say the least. (laughs) To say the least. Two very, very different directors. Jerry Zaks. Uh, Jerry Zaks, it was all about timing and all about rhythm and the tempo rhythm of the piece. And uh, Trevor, it was, again, more about the truth and the reality. Uh, and also the play, playing it farce, like a farce. The the whole sequence, and I know you saw the show, and, and to explain this, that there were certain doors on the ship for the, the listeners there that we use coming in and out all the time, and that's a, a classic element of farce, doors being used to go in and out and characters just coming on and going off stage. And again, Jerry did use that also, but with rotating doors. So there were great similarities. I came into it and... Uh, used I had to start from a fresh palette because a lot of it and you know Trevor and I talked about it when I started to do it and I've worked you know obviously I'd worked with Trevor you know numerous times before and uh, he said you're just going to have to trust that trust what I ask you to do and trust yourself that you will be able to do it but it was it was one of the most amazing experiences for the last 2 years having done it at the National Theater where it was the most successful show at the National Theater in the history of the National in terms of box office and money-making show for them. Uh, and there were people queuing the night before a performance. I'm talking pensioners in their 60s queuing to get standing room-only tickets for £10 to uh, see the next day's show. Then when we had, a, we had about a six-month break uh, where we thought the show had ended. We thought it was not going to continue from the National. And then, all, lo and behold, the, the Drury Lane became available, and that was it. The, the 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 ship set sail again. So it's been about two years that it, it it's taken a, uh, up of my life, and two really really happy happy years because it, it again I'm you know I'm immersed in Cole Porter. I, it seems like my life is just going to to circle around Cole Porter for well, for quite a long time, and I'm perfectly happy to have that. Are, are you are you familiar with with Porter? Having grown up in Indiana, you having grown up in Illinois, yeah, 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 both Midwest backgrounds of no, sort. I even know. though it's, you were born in Glasgow, obviously, right? But uh, the, the the I always you know I say I, I kind of had my formative years were being in the Midwest, and uh-huh. a lot of his formative years were in the Midwest. Yeah, so we kind of come from the same roots in that sense. But what do you think Porter might have said about the movie? Wow, I don't. Well, let's put it this way: about the performances of his music, not about his life, but about the. Well, I think he. Okay, I, I think that certain aspects of the performances of the music he would have enjoyed because I know he did love to hear people sing his songs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he, he would have been concerned at the context that they were, you know, taken and put into. Very, very much out of context. Yes, for one of them, for instance, that comes to mind, one that I sang in, you know, "Anything Goes in London," "Easy to Love," which I he sang in the movie to his wife. In a mm-hmm. park in Paris, and, and it I was sing Jimmy it, Stewart in the movie. Yes, and I and I sing um, uh, uh, it to uh, I sing it to um, uh, Hope Harcourt in the show, but it was actually written for a man. Mm. 
it wasn't written for a woman. And one of the the really wonderful things about the lyrics in that song that he was really walking on a, a fine tightrope and a wire and really pushing the limits in a sense of that period. The the, the lyric I jumped to right away is uh, uh, so not um so not so easy to love so easy to idolize so others above uh so nice to waken with so nice to sit down to eggs and bacon with. Mm-hmm. Now, singing to a woman, that's no big deal. But if you know it's being sung to a man and it's written about a man, sung by a man man to to a man, man. that's really risque. And I just think what a a glorious thing for him to be able to do that and to just kind of pull the wool over everybody's eyes in that way. But again, I think he would have been happy with the movie because it didn't make his his, uh, uh, homosexuality salacious. I mean, there were aspects of the scenes with the, you know Linda coming home and not being happy about 15 young men being around the swimming pool mm-hmm. with them. But they didn't make a great... They treated it as the norm. And Irwin's... view I was quite pleased with the way Irwin approached it um, because he didn't make it something that was bad. And that's not what it, you know, what, what it is. It's not bad. And it was a subject that in 1946, when Night and Day was made, the one that started... Could not be touched. You could not even touch it. You couldn't no. even acknowledge it back then. Not at all. And that. I'm so glad we're able to now because... You know, just people need to know. People need well, to know. Well, to things. use a cold portal line, times have changed. Yes, they have. <laughs> We've often rewound the clock. Cetera, a glimpse of stocking is no longer shocking. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's play a song from your new album. Tell us about that. It's a new album called, I'll, I'll say the name of it, John Barrowman Swings Cold Porter. It certainly and is. With you singing his music. Me singing his music. I, I, Larry Blank, who did all the orchestrations, who many of you who know uh, Broadway orchestrations will know Larry. He does a lot of stuff, uh, and uh, very wonderfully, to take these old songs and to give them a new life. Uh, Stuart McIntosh, who produced it, and uh, John Craig from First Night Records, who I went to the pro- to him with the project first. We all sat in my living room for weeks and decided on the songs to uh, put on the album, and all of them on the album, all... Uh, 13 tracks plus the bonus 14th track uh, all really have a close uh, they mean something to me and that's why they're on there and in particular one song uh, which I think uh, epitomizes and describes Cole Porter's uh, life and his constantly questioning his sexuality uh, and love and it's the song what is this thing called love and it just i think that tells you a lot about cole porter it's autobiographical all of that stuff john barrowman from his new cd john barrowman swings cole porter the cd john has as you point out 13 songs plus that bonus track of easy to love from the recording of anything goes yep you did not select night and day well, I didn't select it because I, I'd already done it, and we'd already uh, recorded it for the soundtrack album. And so that would have been redundant. That Well, it would have been redundant. Wayne. Some people say, well, uh, Easy to Love is redundant, but it just happens to be the same record company that did the cast uh, <laughs> recording uh, for um, Anything Goes in the West End. But also, I wanted 13 tracks on it because 13 is my lucky number. My mother was born on Friday the 13th. <laughs> uh-huh. And John Craig, who uh, runs the record company, wanted an even number because he thinks 13 <laughs> is unlucky. So we came to an agreement. I let him put the bonus track on and Very he allowed clever. me to have 13. Very clever. <laughs> you know the story about how Cole Porter wrote Night and Day? No, tell me. He was visiting Lady Astor in Newport, Rhode Island. It was at the end of a rainy afternoon. They were sitting on her porch, and there was a leaky gutter, a leaky downspout, and it kept dripping. And she said something to the effect, I wish somebody would fix that drip, drip, drip. 
and that inspired him. He was looking for a lyric to introduce the song, oh. and that that launched him on writing Night and Day. That um, again, that's <laughs> I mean that just that's wonderful because it's uh, it's all those little things that. Big things come from little things. And that's Your amazing. CD is available in record stores everywhere on October 5th. Correct. Which is just weeks away. Certainly. John, I must mention this. John Barrowman swings cold port. I will hold it up to the camera so everybody can see it. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't see it, you can visualize Always it. Always good on a radio interview. Yes. <laughs> it's a, nice, it's a nice picture. If you want to see the picture, you can go to my website, www.barrowmanonline.com, and you can see the cover there. Everybody has a website nowadays. They Yes, they do. And you know what? That's another thing that's been really great is, is the web to be able to uh, – you guys are doing a great job in getting the, the, the voice and the music of musical theater out there and I think it's fantastic but also the web has done a great thing for that because we can put things in our in programs now of our websites and introduce uh, audience members not only more to ourselves but to other performers because we have links I mean I have links to Betty Buckley's to uh, Matt Bogart uh, quite a few other friends of mine in the industry so yeah the web and you guys uh, you know satellite digital uh, we need you well Voice and music of musical theater. There, there's my segue. Earlier in this uh, interview, you know, we've certainly talked about the fact that you were born in Glasgow, but, but primarily raised here in the U.S. But you have used words like queuing and pensioners and bums and seats, which are which are certainly British expressions. Um, it leads me to the question of the difference. Is there a difference between the performing of musicals in England and the performing of musicals here in the U.S. Because in America, of course, we talk about the, one of the great contributions that America has made to culture is the creation of musical comedy. Um, how does it play over here versus over there? Are there differences? And as performers, do you see a difference in the discipline in the performers and the training of performers for it? Yes. Um, there... It, and this is not I'm not being uh, it's a, this is difficult for me because I, I work in both countries and I enjoy working in both countries let me say that right off the bat and I enjoy working with the people I work with but there is a difference in the discipline uh, some of it is, is relevant uh, some of it is the same uh, for instance I always use the example when I was doing Sunset in London uh, there was a, uh, a girl in London who was every night oh I don't want to go on oh my god God, my legs, this, that, and the next thing. There was always a complaint, and I turn off when I hear that. I turn off to that per that particular person. When I was doing it on Broadway, I stood next to a girl, and she was she, every night before we went on, she would say, "I thank whoever it is who helped me get this job. I am so thankful for this job." And she would go on and do the work. There is a different kind of work ethic. Yet we, it can vary. There can be you know people who don't want to do it here, and people who are really you know so glad to be doing it in the UK audiences are incredibly different um, American audiences uh, tend to get up on their feet much quicker than British audiences when British audiences do get up on their feet you know you've really done a fantastic spectacular job which I should say they did when I saw anything goes a couple of oh, weeks ago so kind of you so kind of we you. have to point that yes out. Um, uh, but uh, sometimes when I would work in, on broad when I was working on Broadway you become complacent about them getting up on their feet because you know it's going to happen. Uh, but again, it's a way they show their enthusiasm. The, the, the American audiences are much more uh, uh, into showing their excitement and their energy as opposed to the British audiences. That's not saying the British audiences aren't enjoying it as much. There was a, a show I did 
particular for styles of shows because some things work in America and they, or sorry, work in the UK and don't work in America. There was a show I did called The Fix, which was, uh, uh, you know, a brand new show that was written by uh, Dana P. Rowe and um, oh, I, John Dempsey. John Dempsey. I forgot John's name. I'm sorry, John. Uh, they wrote it and we all worked together, Sam Mendez and I, on the show with Cameron McIntosh and we developed this whole thing. And uh, a British audiences uh, enjoyed it, but not to the extent of what we thought they would. It was almost too American for them. Yet when that show itself came to Cameron, then brought it over to the States and did it in uh, Washington, D.C., they loved it. They absolutely loved it. But, um, you know, so it, 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 you just don't know sometimes. You have no idea what's going to happen. Um, and again, you know, it, it it sounds it's it's funny to, to to look at it. It's that is it's a difficult question to say. I'm not saying who's better or who's not better, audience wise or show wise. I mean, we all do things. There was a time when British musicals, you know, the 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 British invasion came to the U.S. Uh, and not everyone was happy about that. But right now in the U.K., we're having an American invasion. Anything goes. We have the producers. Uh, you know, a lot of um, Wicked is about to, they're talking about bringing that over. So Broadway is going to invade the West End for a while. And, you know, hey, the more American shows mm-hmm. that come over to the West End, that's the more work for me. Now, John, we talked about the audiences being different. How about the performances themselves, the people on stage? Now, here's my, my personal observation yep. for whether it's right or wrong. I've seen the same shows in New York with the original Broadway cast and in London version of the show. I sense very different performances from the the people up on stage. The New York people, you may not understand every lyric, you may not understand every word they say, they may slur and all that, but they have an energy and a vitality. The British are very, very precise. You get every single syllable, every nuance, but to me it doesn't seem to have the energy level. Yeah, and you're correct in saying that because the performances here, there's and all I can say is it's 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 (laughs) It sounds trite, but it's Broadway. It's that kind of, that feeling, that uh, energy level that you know when you're going to go out and perform, that you, it's what I call the heightened energy, heightened reality. British performers in musicals, some of them haven't, some have it, some don't. And you can really pick it out sometimes when you see a show where not everybody is doing the same thing. They're getting better at it. And I've been asked to do a couple of workshops with uh, some theater schools to go in and basically teach that. It's, 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 you know, it's what I call, it's the fairy dust. It's the sparkle. Mm-hmm. It's when you walk on stage and, and, and you know that person has walked on because you're drawn to them. You know, uh, that was when working with Betty Buckley in Sunset. Every night she'd come on stage, she'd come on and I would, she'd pull me. She'd pull my... My focus, and that was the job for doing it. Not, you know, not taking the focus completely, but because she was about to sing the big number. But it's, yeah, they don't seem to have that kind of pizzazz that we have in the U.S. And that's and a good word Broadway. for it, pizzazz. The pizzazz, yeah. yeah. The 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 hands. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, one one other thing that I noticed also, it seemed to me that the British performers would speak with their native accent, their British dialect. Then they would lose that when they sang. For example, I saw a chorus line in mm. London some years ago, obviously, and during the songs it sounded just as American as the American version. Yet when the one actor delivered the line, 
I'm from Buffalo, New York, and a very heavy British accent. Half the audience, the American half the audience, cracked up. Yeah. Because obviously well, he was not from Buffalo, New York. Well, I think we, we have uh, become a little better at that over in the U.K. because uh, most shows, when they're American, <clears throat> excuse me, when the, the, we have dialect coaches come in now, uh-huh. And even to the point when I was in first in the UK, they put me with a dialect coach for an American accent. And you seem to go in and out of your Scottish accent, British accent, American accent. Yeah, I, I, I'm a bit of a schizophrenic in that sense. Uh, when I'm with my family, if you were to come to our household in uh, central Florida, where my mum and dad now live, this is the way I speak when I'm with my mum and dad, which is with the Scottish accent. And uh, <laughs> it's basically a, a different person comes out of the body of John Barrowman. But when I'm with people who don't know me as being Scottish, I speak with the American accent. And uh, it's, it was all when I was a kid. Again, when we moved to the States, I did it to not be made fun of by kids at school. But when I'm in London, I have this kind of... People think I'm I'm Canadian almost, but it's a kind of a mid-Atlantic uh, accent that I have. And then have you had to be coached uh, when you were doing Anything Goes at the National? You were in rep doing Love's Labor's Loss. No, I did, well. and I, yep. I and I didn't have to be coached. No, and I you know again I Love's Labor's Loss. I thank Trevor for that opportunity because not many music, most of the cast of Anything Goes got to do Love's Labor's Lost at the National, and to do Shakespeare at the National is one of the the highest accolades you can have on your resume in the UK and in the world and uh, give I, I was fine with that because I had done what I call uh, Queen's English before that's what you we call it in, in the UK and I'd done a play called Rope where I, I did that and some of the comments I was able they said you couldn't tell I was an American but it was uh, that yeah it would Trevor gave musical theater people the chance to you know because a lot of actors think musical theater people can't act well you know what I have news for you acting it takes a lot more to act a song and to do dialogue and to move and dance while you're acting it's uh, very very I, difficult I, I, i've heard many um actors who are not singers not uh, musical actors yeah. say the same thing oh yeah and i think it's a bunch of bull i really do i really do it really angers me i you know i i have friends who say it to me you know oh you're not really a real actor well you know what i have three ways of expressing my talent and emotion and you only have one hmm one uh, one noted actor who I shall not name uh, recently uh, said to me, and he does not sing. He does not do musicals. Oh, please name um, him. No. Although, <laughs> although he has been in musicals, but not as a singer. Yes. He had said, I don't understand how these people can perform, can sing, can dance, and do that, and still act. He said, I, I'm, he was just it's all the marvel- same. marveling at it. Yeah, It's all the same. That's what I try to teach the kids that I do the workshop with, that when you sing, it's not that, and that's their big problem. They they do the scene, and then they go to sing, and it's they, it's like something alien to them. And I try to get them to think, you know, it's it's all the same. It, it has a whole through line. You only start singing because you have so m- much emotional level that you can no longer talk, so you burst into song. And you're expressing yourself through song. And if you can get that, you'll be so uh, such a better performer right off the bat, right off the bat. I want to jump back to a show you mentioned earlier, The mm-hmm. Fix, because as we look at your extraordinary resume, in many cases you've done revivals or you've gone into other productions. The Fix was a case where you really had the opportunity to to be with the show from the beginning. Yeah. And it's not a show, although it did play over here and was well-received down in Washington, it did not make it up to New York. It no. was not seen broadly. Can you just tell us a little about the experience of doing that show and, and set up? We'd love to play a track from that so yeah. that people can hear a, a, a little more diversity in, in what you're doing. Well, that was a, the, the fix was amazing. It was the first time that they put a kind of a risque subject into a musical format. And I, in a nutshell, I was playing a young man who was whose father had died, who was a politician going to be running for president at some point. 
and uh, with a controlling mother and a uh, handicapped uh, uncle who was also a controlling my, uh, in in the f- a controller in the force of of things. My character was pushed into the political realm. I became involved with cocaine and heroin. I had a wife, a child, and a mistress. And through this whole show, proceeded to do the most uh, sinister things to uh, my uncle in a wheelchair and uh, manipulate people. And it was wonderful because I was playing this character who was not a goody two-shoes. And I absolutely adored it. And towards the end of the... he Cal, his, his name was Cal, and he followed like a puppy on a leash with his mom and his uncle leading him and putting him in all these situations, allowing him to use the drugs to uh, further his career because he was able to publicly to speak publicly and be a better politician, so to speak, with all the, the bad things going on. But there's later on in the, 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 uh, the, the musical, and he comes around to his senses, and he has a kind of a, a moment where he realizes he's lost a lot of stuff. He's lost a lot of his his life, a lot of his childhood. And uh, the song Child's Play, which comes right into my mind, describes Cal's looking back on his life to date and not regretting, but regretting. From the fix, that's... John Barrowman with Child's Play. John, you're visiting the States now. You've been in London. Now you're in the States. For how long are you going to be here, and what are you doing while you're here? Well, I'm, I'm basically doing publicity for the album, mm-hmm. and uh, I then have to go. That's my only reason for coming over at the moment. I go back to the U.K. because I'm currently rehearsing. I have a 10-week slot, and uh, the people at Chicago have wanted me to do Billy Flynn for years, and I'm going in to play Billy Flynn in Chicago and London for 10 weeks. And then after that... I uh, am in, for those of you who might know of the TV series Doctor Who, uh, I'm one of the main characters in the the new TV series of Doctor Who for the BBC in the UK, which hopefully will be playing on, as it used to, used to play on PBS over here, but I don't know, it may go on to a different channel over here, so just watch out. I'm really looking forward to that. Do we? You, do you think we might see you on this side of the pond on Broadway at some point? Uh, possibly. I have been asked to do Anything Goes uh, at the Amundsen Theater in Los Angeles uh-huh. prior to a possible uh, Broadway run, and uh, it just all has to work out with scheduling, really. So it's, it's keep your fingers crossed, because again, I'd love to bring Billy Crocker to these shores. Or how about Billy Flynn to Chicago? Yeah, they've asked me, they've talked about that, but I don't I don't want to jump to that right away. I'll see the how I get on with have, have a company, they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll <laughs> shuttle actors around as long yeah. as they're good well, that, in the Well, you show. know, hey, it, I, I, that, that's what I'd like to do, and you never know. But to conclude this interview, I want to ask, I, I saw, you, you've worked as what in England they call as a presenter, we would call a host or an interviewer. Yeah. Um, you you just did a sustained interview with Andrew Lloyd Webber. That's right. Uh, a couple of parts. What What's it like to sit and be the questioner as opposed to do the subject? Well, it it, it helps me being the subject because I, I know, you know, I don't give people one-line answers. But sitting with, you know, with Andrew and doing all that kind of stuff, uh, I, I've known Andrew and I've sat with him on other occasions sitting, you know, sharing a glass of wine uh, discussing Sunset Boulevard and things like that, but a lot of people, I'm. It was amazing to to listen to him because a lot of people have said in response to that uh, interview, um, they've said they've never heard him talk so openly and so freely, 
And uh, I'm quite pleased with that because the series itself, it was over a two-part series for BBC Radio 2. And, and uh, they they were pleased with it. The public were pleased with it because there were times when the publicist was in the background going with the hands up saying, you know, mouthing, don't say that. Don't talk. Don't say anything else. But, yeah, no, he's... I. I like Andrew. I really do. I, and, you know, for all the people who say they don't like his music, that's perfectly fine. You don't have to listen to it. But I I think he does. Andrew created a niche for actors and performers who were, didn't do well with dialogue. And he created, you know, the this, this, this sing-through musicals, basically. And uh, um, good luck to him. And, and the next one, Woman in White, and David Zippel, who wrote the lyrics for that, who's a great friend of mine, they're all over in London getting ready for the premiere, which I'm going to go back and, and see. So I'll... Maybe I'll let you know how that was. And even the naysayers can't argue with the success of Andrew Lloyd Webber and no, his musicals. Listen, four, they've been running a while. Four hundred. It's up to it's four hundred million. I think it is. Uh, if I'm, um, I might be wrong in that quote, but you can. Uh, and the 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 series that you know, Cats and Aunt Phantom, everything they've made him a fortune. They've made him an absolute fortune, and you know he continues to do to try to put. He loves musicals. Andrew's biggest passion is musical theater. That's the 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 medium that he loves, and he loves creating that kind of stuff. And if you ever get a chance to hear the interview, you'll you'll get that from it. And I, we should say for our listeners, I believe that interview is available. People can link to it on their computers by going to the Woman in White website. Woman in White, correctly. or or um, if you don't mind me saying, www.bbcradio. Uh, sorry, www.bbc.co.uk slash radio2, and you look up my name, John Barrowman, and it will take you right to the link. Well, Terrific. John, we do thank you for being here today, and we wish you continued success. Why don't you give us your website address one more time? It's www.barrowmanonline.com, and can I just say thank you to XM for doing this with musicals. It's a great thing. Well, you're most welcome. I also want to remind our listeners uh, that your new CD, John Barrowman's Swings, Cole Porter, will be available October 5th in record stores everywhere. You're hearing it currently. We've been playing it for a week or so now. We'll continue playing it right here at XM28 on Broadway. John Barrowman, thank you very much. Thank you very much, I'm guys. John Von Susten. And I'm Howard Sherman from the American Theater Wing. I want to remind you that the interviews uh, from Downstage Center are archived along with a host of other streaming audio and video on the American Theater Wing website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And that's a wrap for this week on Downstage Center. Thank you.